Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver sermon audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Okay, well that's great. Um, Nice to, again, to be with you and to preach God's Word, and I preach occasionally, and I think um, when you occasionally preach, it's always, uh, you know, you always wonder what to preach about, and it's always safe, I think, to preach about Jesus Christ. <laughs> and so today, we'll preach about, we'll uh, hear about him. So let's turn to John 18, if you would, John 18. And I have a horrible thesis statement, um, which all you people who have some um, education background will recognize as being horrible because it's complicated, it's wordy, um, it's not memorable. But here we go. Here's my thesis. The magnificent authority and bracing hope that come to full light in Jesus' resurrection are already apparent there during the arrest which sets off the proceedings that culminate in resurrection. You, do you agree it's a little bit much? <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, let's read John 18, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who, who, uh, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, From the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. 
Okay, there it is. There's our passage for today. And so, um, to cut to the chase, I believe that John inserts this extended account of Jesus' arrest in the garden in order to portray the authority of Jesus. It's about Jesus' authority. And all the way leading up to Jesus being bound, and really all the way through, he is the man in charge. And so this morning, I just want to ask four questions um, about Jesus' authority from this passage. Is that good? Four questions, that's the sermon. Number one, in our passage, what are evidences of Jesus' authority? That he's the man in charge. Well, first of all, Jesus is leading the disciples into the garden. (laughs) This was his idea. Secondly, let's notice that Jesus entered this garden knowing that that Judas was quite familiar with the place and would probably recall it as he led the soldiers on their search for Jesus. So, it's not a stretch to say that Jesus went there, he was... Uh, He went there expecting, even intending, to meet Judas and the soldiers. And he got there first, and he was, as it were, awaiting them. He's in charge. And John, the narrator, leaves us in no doubt about this. In verse 4, when Jesus approaches them... He, uh, he did so, quote, knowing all that would happen to him. And so Jesus was aware of everything that was about to go down. And he knew exactly how, it would, um, how things would unfold. The next piece of evidence that, that Jesus is in charge is that he approaches the party coming to arrest him. And then he just initiates the conversation. You see that, right? Uh, Try doing that at a traffic stop. You get pulled over by the police, and uh, you get out of your car, and you start walking toward the policeman. And you say something like, what's on your mind, officer? Well, uh, he's going to say something like, stay where you are. We're asking the questions, pal. But Jesus doesn't get any such response. They're following his lead. When they declare that to his question that they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus replies with, I am. Now the ESV translation says, I am he. But actually the Greek text is simply, ego eimi, I am. Now, in one sense, there's nothing extraordinary about that reply. I am, of course, would have been the typical expected way for Jesus to answer that question. However, the fact that the I am comes at the end of a book 
where Jesus is heard identifying himself as I am the bread of the world. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd, etc. Plus the fact that earlier in the book, he, he had also been recorded as saying that, that, that before Abraham was, I am. Plus the fact that I am is the ancient reply of Jehovah when asked to identify himself. All of these factors add up to the thing that when Jesus replies with I am, something big and terrible and primeval and mysterious and awesome and holy comes up like a sudden gale. Maybe, because we this is what is true, maybe when they hear the Creator uttering the two words, I am, these men's minds are sent everywhere at once to dinosaurs and birthday parties and rings around planets, electrons bouncing against each other, two griffins and sweat and peat moss and nations rising and falling and Holy Spirit, and desert sun, and judgment day, and humpback whale, waving fields of wheat, etc., etc. And before those two words coming out from the man who is obviously in charge, the arresting party retreats. They're afraid. Their stomachs start to clench. Their shoulders start to raise, their necks grow taut, and they start shuffling backwards. And then, maybe with our final piece of comedy until Easter morning, they start falling over. Probably toppling over, one, so they're toppling over, you know, just each other. You think about that scene. How, how many of them were there in this arresting party? Um, may, I, I'm, I'm just guessing. Maybe 30? Have you ever seen 30 men, and, and we're talking men who are grown and they're awake and they're healthy. Some of them probably are especially fit because, you know, they are soldiers. Fallen onto the ground. Just, so just picture that. Seeing someone fall is memorable. Um, you remember when you last saw someone actually fall? Um, our family, I think everyone except for Ben, because he wasn't in shape, uh, we climbed Mount, Mount, Mount Belford um, a couple summers ago. 
and uh, which is down next to Buena Vista. And uh, we we did get to the top, and it was, it was probably what was it, fourteen uh, one or something like that. And um, so we that we were going to take a picture of our family, and a guy up there asked uh, asked, "Would you like us to take a picture?" He's probably in his late late fifties. And we said, oh, yeah, thanks very much. And so and the, the summit is not large. Um, it's not quite a peak, but it's not big. And so he steps back to take our picture, and he trips. And, um, and it was like it, the tripping happened over like seven seconds, and he kept kind of recovering. He would almost recover, and then he would start to trip again. And, uh, you know, uh, so then if he had kept on, you know, falling, he would have fallen off the mountain. But anyway, he just fell, he fell to the ground. Uh, he he kind of got scuffed up. And uh, we were all really shaken, having seen that. Um, so shaken that when I came back home, that was one of the stories I told everybody. Boy, you know, we almost lost someone at the top, you know. Uh, you know, okay, just since he was taking our photo. The point is... Seeing one person fall is memorable, and falling just looks weak. It looks pathetic. It's, it's, it's painful to watch. Seeing 30 people topple over must have made for a profound spectacle. It's something that will stay with you. It, it, all could obviously stay with John. And the message behind seeing 30 30 people sort of topple over, will also stay with you. And that message could be framed as a question, which is, who's really in charge here? Could we squeeze one more drop of comedy from this? Yes, of course we can. We can find a lot of comedy. Uh, there, there are so many possible reactions that Jesus could have had to this toppled over group. Yes? What would you say if you... And, and uh, we can imagine caring Jesus would say something like, Are you guys okay? Congenial Jesus would have said something like, yeah, those tree roots, they are a doozy. I almost fell over one myself. Surly Jesus would have said something like, you know, standing over them, now scram. But the real Jesus, what does he say? He says again, he repeats his question. Now, whom are you seeking? To that toppled over group. And that's like, zing, Pow! You know, without those, you know, those old Batman. That's a great line. Who are you seeking again? Anyway. And so then, after that, Jesus resumes the conversation. Again, he doesn't take advantage of their weak knees to run away. Rather, he brings them back to their purpose. He says, um, so then just as if to say, now guys, remember what you came to do. Moreover, as they're placing him into custody, he orders that his disciples be released. 
Not, he doesn't ask, he orders. And finally, when Peter slides his sword or his knife out of its sheath and cuts off Malchus' ear, Jesus kind of snarls at him. Put your sword into its sheath. Jesus is in command even of himself. Ever remembering what this moment is really about. Peter's display of ferocious loyalty doesn't, 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 uh, doesn't distract him from what this situation is. So, so, brothers and sisters, John is making the point, and I think he makes it. Jesus is in charge. And, uh, so anyway, so that's our first question. It was a longer one. Number two. Okay, we got that. What are evidence is that Jesus was in charge? Now our second question we're going to ask about Jesus' authority from this passage. Let's ask the opposite question. From our passage in this scene, what are ingredients that would seem to contradict the idea that Jesus is clearly in charge. And I'm going to mention two things. Number one, the opposition to Jesus is real. And it's stacked. <laughs> Roman soldiers, the officers of the chief priest who would who would be just as much politicians as they would be clergy, and Pharisees. We could say, here we have soldiers, politicians, and pastors arrayed against Jesus. Or we could say, military, rulers, and the gatekeepers, the cultural gatekeepers. And this is obviously, it's a strange alignment and relationship between these groups would normally be combative, but they're all united now. And they're united by this. They all want Jesus out of the way. Right? We good there? And you think about this impressive opposition is spearheaded by a Jesus, a Jesus insider. Judas, the text says, knows the habits. He spotted all the loopholes. Also, if Judas has turned, who other is going to follow? Judas' betrayal calls all of the disciples' loyalty into question. And among this impressive opposition to Jesus, we could even include Peter. Since he is acting in a way that it would thwart the purpose of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, again, in your mind's eye, look these opponents in the eye and be intimidated the might of Rome, the envy of the ruling class, 
the pure fervency of the Pharisee, the inside knowledge of the recently disenchanted, the ignorant ineptitude of the sincere, all in their way united against Christ. And now, when you have the opposition squarely in view, actually, Jesus uh, Jesus doesn't seem to be in control as before. There's just too many. So, the weight or the number or the strength or the position of opposition calls into question the opinion that Jesus is in charge. And secondly, so does verse 12 specifically. Verse 12 says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Yeah? Verse 12. In fact, if we only had the scene of verse 12 before us, we would think that Jesus had simply been overcome. Yeah? Even after we've been exposed to the happenings of verses 1 through 11, we get to verse 12, and it seems that verse, those events, to that, that picture, to nullify everything that has led up to that. The, that sort of image of Jesus in chains, kind of shuffling off with the captain's overpowers everything leading up to it. I pretend, because I like to pretend, I pretend that Judas had invited a Jerusalem Times reporter to the scene, and he had promised him, you're going to have a scoop here. And uh, the reporter snaps the photo, or I don't know, carves the photo, I don't know what they were doing back there, but snaps the photo of, of of there is Jesus and his arms and his legs are bound and he's uh, are bound and he's surrounded by these muscular soldiers and then there's the headline the next morning that picture with this headline anarchist taken into custody after a brief violent skirmish and you just look at that you think that would be convincing And so thus, that image or that footage in verse 12 seems to definitively announce that, well, as it turns out, Jesus wasn't in charge. And so that's what we've got so far. The Holy Spirit is presenting Jesus as the man in charge, even as he's being arrested. And I think we would all agree that that is the emphasis here, even the primary message And yet, in this account that shows Jesus in charge, there are elements to focus on that would easily bury that primary message of Jesus being in charge. We good so far? Here's our third question. It's going to be a breeze. We're going to fly right through it. And it's just kind of a summary. And here we're going to kind of go off the ground and, you know, out of the scene and kind of extrapolate some principles, I guess. Here here it is. From this passage, 
what are some ugly realities that could still be present even while Jesus is in charge? And I'm just going to list. I'm, I, I'm not even going to, to, to explain. I'll just list them. And please listen. Tell me, or you don't have to tell me, but think, do you agree with this from this passage? Okay? Number one, so the, the question is, what are some ugly realities that can still be present even while Jesus is in charge? Number one, there can still be antichrist people doing antichrist things, even while Jesus is in charge. And in fact, those antichrists could join forces and become a major antichrist. We good with that? Number two, there, even while Jesus is in charge, there can be former followers of Christ who aren't content to just kind of sit things out but are actually spearheading the effort against Christ. We agree that's in here. Number three, there can, even as Christ is in charge, there can still be ignorance and recklessness among Christ's sincere followers. Sincere and yet who haven't at all grasped the big picture of what Christ is doing. And then finally, and really simply, even if, even with Jesus being in charge, there can still be pain and a hard future in store. Nathan will talk about that next week. Okay, so there it is. That's our third question we're racing through. And number fourth question is this. Uh, and here's the last uh, question of the sermon. Uh, Jesus is the man in charge. Okay, John is making that point. What is Jesus using his authority for? That's actually not really good grammar. Now that I just thought about that. For for what is Jesus using his authority in this passage? Okay, I have three quick answers to that. And the first answer is complicated, I admit. So here we're coming to the most dense part of the sermon. And uh, if you can, um, you know, grab a hold of your pew and try to follow along, it'll be great. Okay. Here's the complicated sentence. What is he using his authority for? Here it is. Jesus is using his power, his authority, to encourage his followers with the reality that he's in charge by showing them that he's in charge. I should have taken more time with that, with that sentence. So what I mean with that is there's a reason that Jesus didn't send his followers away before all this happened. He sent them away after. Out of harm's way. He, and that reason is he wanted them to see this. And there's a reason that the God's Spirit had John include this exchange in his gospel. And that's 
He wanted us to see this. Here, Jesus is using His authority to manifest His authority. He's pushing it on us. He thought it was important that we would know, here it is, that we would at every moment perceive, even as certain moments might contradict this truth, that he is the man in charge. That's an important lesson that our Lord wants us to carry around. He is the man in charge. Why is he using, what, for, what is Jesus using his authority for? Secondly, He's using his authority to preserve his followers until they've accomplished what they're called to do. He orders the opposition. Uh, Where is that actually? Where is that? Nine, yes, no, eight, let these men go. And he's referring to his, to his disciples. He uses his authority to preserve. And then John in verse nine, John the narrator here, uh, connects Jesus' command, let these men go, with something He, Jesus, had said previously to his heavenly Father, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Right? You see that? And sure, and and we have that quote. Sure enough, in chapter the previous chapter, verse twelve, Jesus praying to the Father, and he makes this claim to his Father, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And he had said something similar back in John 6, verse 39. Now, when I hear Jesus saying that to his father, I would think that he's talking about something about keeping his followers' eternal souls. Right? Wouldn't you think that? Not allowing the devil or you know, evil to, to snatch them away from him. And I'm sure he did mean that. But according to our passage today, he also meant keeping his followers from physical harm. Yes? Am I making this up? This is it good? I mean, is it, is it clear? So Jesus' boast to his Father includes that he protects every one of his followers from all harm, including keeping them physically safe. And isn't that a fact valuable to know? That Jesus is using his authority to keep his followers physically safe, even during the time of corona. And I, and I, I know I'm not totally simplistic, although I'm mainly simplistic. There is some mental digging to do around all of you know, this phrase and this concept. But let's hear it again. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Talking about his followers' physical well-being and safety. 
And so these men are released by Jesus' order, and their lives are protected. Because Jesus said, I have lost not one. Now, you cynics out there, and I'm a cynic up here, are thinking, well, uh, wait, as I understand it, all of these men were eventually captured, and then uh, most of them were executed. So what comfort is Jesus' oath to his father of their physical safekeeping? And the answer must be, unless you can tell me a different one, the answer must be, Jesus will keep you safe, physically safe. He will not allow you to be taken or die as long as he has something for you to do. These men were safe until they accomplished their purpose, and even then, through death, they were brought to their Heavenly Father, safe all the way through. And so Jesus uses his authority to preserve his followers until they have accomplished what they're supposed to. And then finally, what is he using his authority for? Jesus uses his authority to kind of forge ahead in his Father's work and mission. Particularly the hard part. And particularly along the route that isn't obvious. He responds to Peter's violence, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Peter's The implication here is that Peter's well-intentioned protection of Jesus was actually a barrier set before the strange and the deep thing that God the Father had sent Jesus to do. And Jesus was to drink a cup from his Father. And from passages in Psalms, in, uh, in the prophets, we know that this cup was filled with the wrath of God against sin. Self-righteousness, hatred, institutional injustice, suspicion, rivalry, sloth, sexual immorality. And so, drink the cup. It's a strange sort of image, Right? But in a way, it's a very effective image. Drink the cup is an image to connote that in front of Jesus was an experience. And it was a violation. And it was a horror that would stream into the depths of himself. And so Jesus... To answer the question, what did he use his authority for? He used his authority to get people out of his way and to get people out of his father's way. To clear the road that would eventuate in his cross. And so Jesus was the man in charge to become the man under the charge of your sin. And mine. Okay, there it is. Those are our four questions. We did it. Can I just give a brief word of conclusion? Sit tight for just 
that, but we're done with the body. Um, the Lord is risen. Risen indeed. Okay, one more time. The Lord is risen. Here you go. So that means that he is an accomplished, victorious Christ. He has set his people free from the guilt of their sin. That, that's what that cup was all about. He has set them free from the superseding power of their sin. And all authority has been given to him. And the devil has lost. I mean, that is the Christian... I mean, there's a lot more to say, but that's a big thrust of the Christian message. It is positive. It is victorious. Yes? And we're, we're kind of sitting in that. And this morning... We saw that, back to my thesis statement, the magnificent authority and bracing hope that came to full light in Jesus' resurrection were already apparent during his arrest, which set off all the proceedings that culminated in resurrection. Our Lord Jesus was the man in charge of everything leading up to his death and his resurrection. And yes, John doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, try to cover up this fact. The way that he took was difficult and involved facing opposition and appearing to lose and death. And yet throughout he acted with purpose and with strength and even efficiency. All the stuff of authority. And what gives us hope is that Christ's history is the pattern for those of us who have believed in him. Right? But more than a pattern, we are connected by faith into the life of Christ. And so Christ in resurrection is the first fruits of what will be a great harvest of Christ's people in resurrection. And so when we hear that Christ is raised, something, unless, you know, I mean, it would be good, I'll put it this way, it would be good if something inside of us would kind of flit and flutter. Christ is raised and, you know, these little flitting and fluttering and that, that hope, you hope, an old New England poet, Emily Dickinson. Who, who, who's read Emily Dickinson in the past week? Oh, what? Oh, okay, but you've read her before. Well, um, she has this great little um, brief poem about hope, and it's, it's great. It says, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And so, when we hear of Christ raised, we sense that's in front of us, too. Resurrection is where, where, where it's all going. And our future really is bright because Christ has been raised and we must follow him as the harvest follows the planting. But, that resurrection is in the future. And here we are now. 
with plenty of hard stuff to get through before the resurrection. And so today, that's why we focused on a pre-resurrection episode to offer the encouragement. Jesus was the man in charge all the way up to and out through resurrection. He's always the man in charge. And so before his resurrection, even in the middle of duress, he was the man in charge. And before our resurrection, even in the middle of duress, he is the man in charge. And so, brothers and sisters, all over the world today, people are bailing out on Jesus. Retreating from his church because they feel wounded. People twisting or erasing or adding to the scripture's presentation of Jesus in order to make him more palatable to contemporary tastes. People quitting on his commandments. Behind all of this quitting on the real Jesus is is defeatism. The kind of pervasive sense that the biblical Jesus is on the losing side. And we need to get off this sinking ship as soon as possible. And behind this sense of defeatism is simply a bad reading, a bad interpretation of what's happening around us. We look around and we see opponents of Christ in government, in the cultural gatekeepers, media, entertainment, academia. We see major forces aligned in this, their opposition to God and to his Christ. And it's all quite intimidating. And... That's true, but we don't receive tons of comfort when we turn away from the secular world to the church. We see people in the church bailing out on the faith, and we think we see plenty more starting down the road to that. And even among Christ's loyal people, loyal people we find foolishness and ignorance Loyalty wrongly applied. And from one vantage point, these counter-Christ phenomena appear to be in charge of the scene. And sort of, they are dictating reality. And the anti-Christ opposition appears to be holding and gaining in strength And surely, if projections uh, keep, are going to come out on top. But this is what this passage is for. We walk by faith and not by sight. And, And faith isn't simply wishful thinking. It's not pretending there isn't complicating evidence. But here it is what faith does. Faith focuses 
Faith zeroes in on the testimony and the emphasis of Scripture and then lets that set the reality. And so, let John this morning, writing in exile about our Lord's arrest, remind you that Jesus is always the man in charge. Yes, in the hard times before resurrection. He's in complete control. And I, I <laughs> believe me, I know this, we cannot fathom exactly or all that Christ has in mind right now. We don't know on our way to following Christ into resurrection all the hard things that are in front of us that we have to pass through because they're included in his Father's strange, dark plan. And yes, there's plenty of opposition, particularly and painfully from former followers and ignorant Christians However, we'll keep in true truth, as Francis Schaeffer used to call it, and not feel alone, and not feel weak, and not feel shabby, if we keep our eyes trained on the Christ whom the Spirit discloses, the Christ of the Apostles, the Christ of Holy Scripture. And that's the man who's always in charge. And so thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, that you uh, and the Ascended Son have released your Holy Spirit into the world and part of his working among us is is um, writing, compiling, and preserving the word, the living word, the true word, uh, the word that in, enlivens Holy Scripture. We thank you also for your spirit who gathers your people whom you are in covenant with to, and he diligently gathers them to sit under uh, the word. And we thank you for the faith that lives in the saints and that falls out of them as we gather together and that encourages one another all by your Spirit, all gifts of the Trinity to your church in this world. And we thank you that the message, the word that we've gathered around today, the true truth is that Jesus is the man in charge. And um, grant to us to not give an inch, to not concede an inch to that truth, to not... Um, that when we do doubt it because of the countervening evidence that your Holy Spirit with the word would, would bring us back to what is reality, that you are in charge and uh, working out your, yes, your dark, but your, your, your saving purposes. And so, Lord, 
give us faith, I guess, is the summary prayer. Give us faith in Jesus Christ as he is. And we ask in his name, amen.